in our lives. We thank you for your presence with us here this morning. We thank you that your word does not return to you void, but it always accomplishes that which you have purposed. And I pray that now as I read uh, your word, that you would quicken it to our hearts, that as I preach it, you would anoint me and enable me to preach it faithfully, to speak on uh, specifically those areas that need to be brought for our edification, for your glory. We love you, Father, and we give you this time as we continue to worship with our responses to the scriptures, and we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We're going to finish up uh, the chapter this morning. Acts chapter 3, verses uh, 22 through 26. But I think I'm going to read it in context, so uh, let me uh, begin back at verse 17 when he speaks about the crucifixion. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." And that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with your fa our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Last week we uh, looked at the wonderful promise that if we need refreshing, we can go to the God of all refreshing, verse 19. And if our lives are broken, we can go to the God who has already begun the times of the restoration of all things. And this chapter ends by pointing out that that restorative work and that refreshing work, which has already begun, is going to extend to all the families of the earth, it's going to extend to all the Jews, and so it's a very encouraging um, uh, passage, but as frequently happens in restoration projects, as uh, Jonathan and Sean and Micah and Mr. Fuyan will tell you, is that when you're doing restoring, a lot of times you also have to do some destruction, right? Sometimes it ain't pretty for a while, uh, while God is tearing apart the things that need to be replaced. And that's what we see in verse 23. It shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utter, utterly destroyed from among the people. <clears throat> we should not think that because God is a God of grace, he's not a God of judgment. That because God uh, does delight in bringing refreshment into our lives and he delights in uh, bringing this restorative work, that God does not at the same time also bring his fiery curses down upon the earth. He does both. And just like uh, Mr. Fuyan, you know, and actually some of the videos I've seen of my kids wanging away at those walls, you know, as they're tearing things down, uh, God takes delight in both. 
judgments as well as in blessings. And uh, so one of the things we're going to be looking at today is, and I've titled the sermon, uh, Judgments and Blessings, um, is the fact that both are present in history and through eternity. In fact, Reformed people uh, many times will speak of redemptive judgments. That many times God's judgments have as their goal, as their purpose, to bring about redemption. That's obviously true in Christ. He was judged for our redemption. But you look at 70 AD, God's judgment upon Israel. What does Romans 11 say? It was for the restoration of the world, right? Uh, and you can see this down through history. When communism took over China, uh, many people were so discouraged, but God was using that as the iron rod in Christ's hands to smite that nation. And as a result, the church grew like crazy. Uh, you can see it when the Russians brought in their, their armies in, into Afghanistan. Up until that time, that country had been so hardened to the gospel, and everybody that went in was just killed. They just couldn't establish a church there. Well, once the Russians got in there, for the first time, that country was opened up to the gospel. And you can see it on and on. Many times God will use those judgments. And so I, I point that out because he quotes from Deuteronomy, and Peter is convinced that God's blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28, same chapter, but both are present, right, continue on into the Messianic, into the messianic uh, age. So let's pick up at verse 22. For Moses, tru uh, yes, Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. <clears throat> Moses says, like me. I find that interesting. Uh, how many preachers have you heard that... Uh, say that Jesus is a prophet like Moses. I have heard many who have said the exact opposite. They go out of their way of making every kind of contrast that they can between the two and uh, uh, are, are frustrated with um, uh, any comparison of Moses to the present. In fact, I've got a book in my library. I just uh, pulled it down this past week, and it says there's too much of Moses in the church. Uh, and the whole book is basically saying we don't deal with Moses, we deal with, with Jesus. But here he says, Jesus is a prophet like Moses. Now, there are legitimate contrasts between Moses and Jesus, but the contrasts that are frequently made are precisely the area that he is comparing the two here, not contrasting the true. Uh, for example, they claim that Moses brought the law while Christ abolished the law. And so the prophecy that Moses brought is utterly different in character, they say, than the prophecy that Jesus brought. That's absolutely false. In fact, according to the New Testament, it was the pre-incarnate Son of God who gave the revelation to Moses so that he could bring it to the people, right? Uh, he was the one who brought that. He was the messenger of the covenant. And so 1 Corinthians 10.9 says that Israel was testing Christ in the wilderness when they disobeyed God's laws. It was Christ, at least in the majority text, it was Christ and the New King James. Uh, that means that Jesus was speaking back there. Now, you've heard me read this a number of times. I'll read it again. Matthew 5:17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So he fulfilled the law, and then he commands us in 1 John 2, verse 6, to imitate him. He says, anybody who claims to be in Jesus ought to walk just as Christ walked. 
So he was a prophet like Moses. Now, some will say, well, yeah, he did fulfill the law, but it was in general strokes. Uh, Jesus was not a legalist. Well, I agree, he was not a legalist, but the implication people have is that Moses was preoccupied with little details, but Jesus was preoccupied with the weightier matters of the law. And they've got a scripture that they can appeal to, Matthew 23, verse 23, but they conveniently only quote the first part of that verse. Let me read you the whole verse. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe on mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. There you got it. Contrast between picky uni, you know, worrisomeness about, about tithing, and Jesus is concerned about the weightier matters of the law. But the next phrase says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Notice he's not saying, you guys are so legalistic. What are you worrying about tithing on herbs in your garden? Get a life. No, he doesn't say that. He says, do both. You need to be uh, looking at the weightier matters of the law. You also need to be looking at the details of the law. Now, the passage I quoted earlier from Matthew 5, uh, 17 through 19, goes on to say, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, whoo, talk about legalism, tittles and jots even, it says one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. He's concerned about the details of the law. He goes on in the next verse and says, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So even the least of the commandments of the Old Testament, Jesus says, continues to go on in the kingdom of heaven, and you're least in the kingdom if you're neglecting those things. By the way, that was just a, a tiny little law that says don't take a mother bird with a baby bird. And it does have ecological implications, but he says even that one we need to be honoring. And uh, so that is not legalism. Let me define legalism. Legalism is adding man's laws to the word of God. And I find it interesting that the biggest legalists are the ones who don't like the law of God. Because you can't live without law, so you ditch man's law, uh, God's law, automatically you begin finding all kinds of rules and regulations that God has not given brought, brought in. And then some will quote John 1.17. They'll say, well, what about this? Jesus said, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So they contrast law with grace and truth. Now there is a contrast in that passage and it's a very important contrast between Moses and Jesus, but it's not a contrast between law and truth as if the law is falsehood. And no, Jesus himself said about the Old Testament Mosaic law to the Father, thy word is truth. Psalm 119, 142 says your law is truth. Law is the very definition of truth. Speaking of Levi, the mouthpiece for Moses, Malachi 2.6 says, the law of truth was in his mouth. And so the contrast that John 1.17 was bringing out is not saying that the prophetic words of Moses are somehow inferior to the prophetic words of Jesus. After all, we just mentioned that Jesus was the one who gave those in his pre-incarnate form. He gave those words to, to Moses. The contrast is that Jesus is more than a prophet. He is also a savior. 
okay, where both Moses and Jews, both Moses and Jesus had truth or had law, only Jesus had truth and grace or law and grace. Why? Because he was a savior. Moses couldn't bring any grace. Impossible. God brought truth through him, but Moses could only look forward to the Lord Jesus Christ to whom the truth, to whom the law was pointing and the law was driving them uh, to trust in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, let's not make a contrast where the the scripture has not uh, brought it. It's important to realize that on the prophetic level, both Moses and Jesus had the same infallibility, the same authority, the same inerrancy in their words. In fact, that's exactly what the, uh, this verse goes on to say. Verse 22, for Moses truly said to the fathers. Moses truly said. God knows nothing of a red letter edition of the Bible where the red words, those are really important. The other ones, oh, they're okay, but they're not as important as the words of Jesus. No, all of the words of the Bible come from Jesus, right? He didn't make a red letter edition. Uh, all of the words are his. Now, certainly there are a lot of contrasts between Moses and Jesus because after all, Jesus alone is the God-man. He alone is perfect. He alone is the king of this universe. But when it comes to his prophetic function, and only men can be prophets, right? When it came to his prophetic function, it says he was a prophet like Moses. There was no inferiority of one over the other. They both spoke the very word of God. And so we must not contrast them on that point. Now, verse 22, again, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother. And as to his manhood, he was a, he was a prophet, he was a Jew, uh, he was anointed by God. And because Moses was a prophet, every word that he spoke was binding, every detail. Because Jesus was a prophet, he was given the very words of God, every word that he spoke was binding. So verse 22 goes on to say, Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. Isn't that what the Great Commission says? We're to teach the nations all things that he has commanded. So there he is. He's the prophet that Moses has foretold. He's telling these, this Jewish audience. Uh, I got into an um, argument a couple of years ago with a, a charismatic who said that it's only the scripture which is inspired. Prophecy that was oral was not inspired. And I pointed to a, this passage as well as a number of other passages and said, wait, now, wait a minute, are you saying that Jesus' words were not inspired? Jesus never wrote a single piece of literature that we know of other than when he wrote in the dust that one time when, remember, the adulterous woman was brought in? And yet his words here, it says, are binding. I think one of the reasons he didn't write any scripture is because he wanted to make it clear what he wrote was not more important than what he gave the whole Bible right? He's the author of it all. And the fact that he was a prophet like Moses shows that his oral words are just as inspired, just as binding as were the words of, of Moses. Now, what does this say about people who believe in, uh, do not believe in biblical inerrancy? There is a, a large group of so-called evangelicals who believe what they call limited inerrancy, which is not inerrancy at all. That's like saying, inerrancy means no error, limited no error. No, that, that, that's an oxymoron. There is no such thing as limited uh, inerrancy. It's either inerrant or it's not. And what they say is that the Bible is inerrant only on what it intends to communicate 
and it only intends to communicate things that I cannot see nor ear hear, and they quote from that scripture, things about heaven and salvation. But any time the Bible speaks about stuff that science can test, it's not necessarily inerrant. You can tell where their real authority is. It's science rather than the scripture. And so these scholars claim that not every word of Jesus needs to be taken at face value, only the essential meaning. These are evangelical, they claim to be. Uh, here's uh, an, an example that they give. Well, let me read that verse again, verse 23, so you can see that it's a contrast. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Uh, Daniel Fuller, who is the president of uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, very respected person in evangelical circles, but I have zero respect for that man because he does not respect the words of Christ. Uh, he says that um, Jesus uh, made a number of errors in his words, and one that he quotes is Matthew 13, 31 through 32, which says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, Fuller says that science knows that a mustard seed is not the smallest of the seeds. There's thousands of seeds smaller than a mustard seed. And uh, so he says his words are not inerrant. Now, to soften the blow, he says, but what Jesus was really trying to communicate, that was inerrant. Not just the words, but the, the meaning behind it was inerrant. Well, that's absolute nonsense. If Jesus didn't know what he was talking about on the seeds that he could see, how in the world can we trust him on prophesying and predicting what's in the future? That's absolutely ridiculous. And Fuller misses the point that Jesus is talking about the seeds that were going into the gardens all around him. He's talking about the farmers planting, and of the seeds that they were planting, the garden seeds, it was by far the smallest seed that was out there. <clears throat> if you give up the inerrancy of every letter and word of the Bible, eventually you're going to begin to give up other things. And this is why I have always said you cannot consider a person to be a true Christian if he denies the inerrancy of Scripture. What does this verse here say? Verse 23. It shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet will be utterly destroyed from among the people. And in what way do they have to hear him? It says here, him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. <clears throat> and I, uh, it's also one of the reasons why I'm really nervous about... Um, uh, not all charismatics hold to this, but charismatics who say, okay, there's uh, New Testament prophecy is not infallible. It's not inspired. In fact, almost all of them make mistakes, and that's why people today will make mistakes. What makes me real nervous about that is it destroys the meaning of the word prophecy in the New Testament. I'm going to keep hammering all the way through this book of Acts that the word prophecy and prophet always means infallible communication of the very Word of God. And we've already exegetically shown that uh, that ceased in 70 AD once the Bible was finished. Now let's look a little bit more at verse 23. Peter's quoting Moses. He says, And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. <clears throat> Some say that's a reference to Jews being cut off from the people of God by an act of discipline, um, like excommunication. Others say, no, this is saying that 
They continue to deserve the death penalty in the New Testament, just like they did in the Old. Others say this is being cut off in 70 AD when God casts away the nation. And others say, no, this is talking about being destroyed in hell. They're separated forever from God's people. And I think all four could be probably true because uh, when he says in verse um, uh, 24 that these things are speaking of these days, I think it has to refer to at least historical judgments, but the word utterly seems to indicate that it applies completely, not just in time, but for all of eternity, that they would be cut off. Our discipline should reflect God's discipline. 70 AD, you know, God comes in judgment on these people who were declared to be outside the people of God. But those who did not repent there forever will be cut off from the Lord. So I don't think you need to choose between those uh, two or three. And the next uh, passage, as I mentioned, uh, clearly applies it to these days. Now, one question that was brought up to me on Friday evening was how a person could be considered one of the people of God and be utterly destroyed from among the people, be cut off. Does that mean that they lose their salvation? And the simple answer is no, it doesn't mean that. Uh, but just very briefly, the scripture describes a visible church, which we admit people into membership in. We can't read people's hearts, can we? So we don't really know. We deal objectively with people. We don't try to read their hearts. And then there is an invisible church, which is uh, God alone uh, admits to. And uh, the visible church has what the, uh, Christ called tares, false believers. But the invisible church only has the elect of God. And so in 1 John, describing those who are cut off, he uses these words. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So he's not talking about losing salvation. John makes it very clear. They weren't of us in the first place. That's why they went out. So hopefully that helps. And just as a side note, verse 24, I think, is a great verse to keep in your arsenal for uh, at least first and second generation dispensationalists. The third generation are a lot closer to where we're at, but they, they used to say that the, the clock of prophecy stopped ticking in terms of, you know, the weeks that were being laid out, stopped ticking when Israel rejected uh, uh, the Lord. And then it's going to start ticking again sometime in the future, but this whole age in between the church ages, the great parentheses, utterly unseen in the Old Testament. But I want you to notice, Peter says that every single prophet from um, Samuel and on was prophesying about these days. They, they were thinking about things that were going to happen. So that's a great text for covenant theology. Now that warning having been given, Peter returns to the gracious promises of, of God. He says, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers. <clears throat> um, they were sons of the prophets. They were also called sons of the covenant. We speak of children of the covenant, right? So sons of the prophets, sons of the covenant, and yet they weren't saved. Uh, just a side note here, I think it's really important that you covenant children not think that just because you are a son of a Christian, or you could even be a son of the great prophets he's talked about, people like Moses and people like Abraham. It doesn't automatically make you a son of God. We need to put our personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. According to John, 
chapter 1, verse 13, that we cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven by being born of the flesh, being born of blood, being born of the will of man. It's only by being born sovereignly of God's spirit. And so we do need to distinguish between people who outwardly look like they're in the covenant, and we can't read hearts, and those who actually are laid hold of by God's grace. There's a big difference between being professors and being possessors. Now, the Pharisees professed to be children of Abraham, and John, being a prophet, knew differently. He said, no, you're not. You're not. God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Now, think about that. How hard would it be to raise up a children of Abraham from a stone? Pretty hard, right? <laughs> Impossible from our perspective. But that's how impossible it is for people to be saved. We get frustrated when we see the hard hearts that are all around us. Hey, it's, it's just as easy for God to regenerate a heart as it is to raise up a stone and vice versa. For God, that's not a big deal at all. And so if we really believe that God is sovereign, he can save the hardest of hearts. Why do people have such a hard time believing the next clause in verse 25? Saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, the seed of Abraham is a singular seed there. It's a reference to Jesus. So he's saying, in Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I want you to notice four things about that phrase there. First, it's universal scope. All the families of the earth. Not just representative families. This is talking about, at some point in history, the conversion of the world. And is that not what we have been mandated to do in the Great Commission, to disciple all nations? And is that not what Paul talks about? Uh, Paul said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and is committed to us the word of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Now in that passage, he makes clear, nobody's going to be reconciled if they don't believe the gospel that is preached. But God is using that gospel, reconciling the world to himself. They're not reconciled yet, so he's talking about a process over history, and it's through the preaching of the gospel, the historical extent of the church. And so what we need to be anticipating is a time in history when the church will have grown to a place where all the families of the earth will be blessed in Christ. And we shouldn't be satisfied with anything less. <clears throat> Um, do we really believe that, that that is possible? Do, is our God big enough to accomplish that? I have to admit, when I look at all the hard-heartedness and I preach, you know, and I go and do visitation and I do evangelism and you just see how hard-hearted people are, I think, boy, that's not possible. <laughs> it just doesn't seem like that could be true. And yet you look at how the church has grown incredibly from Acts chapter 1, 120 disciples, to hundreds of millions of people around the world, who would have thought that possible before? You know, God is great. It is a, not a problem for him. And in fact, in Isaiah, he promised that of the increase of his government and of peace, there would be no end. He said it's going to be little by little that the conquest of Canaan would take place. So that's the first point. We should not be content uh, with less than every square inch of planet Earth submitting to King Jesus. Second, Notice that this blessing can only come through Jesus. Outside of Jesus, there is no hope of salvation. There are a lot of denominations uh, in the last uh, 10 years that have been making statements that uh, people can be saved outside of Jesus, believing in his name. But this is indicating it is only through Christ that this blessing can come. All of the promises of God, Paul says, are yea and amen 
in Christ. There isn't any promise that you can get a blessing through unless it's through Jesus. Third, notice that right from the time of Abraham, God's purpose was already to include Jew and Gentile in the church. Now, in the time of Peter, there was a lot of racists around who really didn't want anybody else in, in there. You know, we have a nice club, we're comfortable. They didn't want all of these people coming in. But Peter says this was not always the way it was. When Abraham came into the faith, when he was circumcised in Genesis chapter 17, there were more Gentiles who were circumcised into the faith than came from his family. At least 318 hired servants and their families were brought into the faith at that time. And so he's saying right from the beginning, a multi-ethnic, a diverse church uh, was God's intention for this, this world. Fourth, notice that God's concern in the New Testament continues to be the family, not just the individual. That should make sense. You know, if we're in the Abrahamic covenant then we, it makes sense to bring in families because that was the family covenant par excellence. And by the way, this is the way it has always been. From the time of Adam and on, every covenant God has ever made with man has always included the family. Uh, and so here we have God's blessing to reach entire families. This is one of many New Testament verses that drives our church in having a family-integrated church. Why is it that we only give one vote per family? Why is it that we uh, welcome children into the uh, church worship service rather than having, you know... Um, uh, what is it called? Children's Church. Thank you. And we don't have age-segregated Sunday school. And we take communion, you know, as a family. And we, um, uh, uh, we have baptisms as families. And we try to make sure that there's, um, uh, there's fellowship as families and there's ministries that are involved as families. We don't uh, disciple uh, women without the husband's uh, oversight and approval or without the father's approval. And there's many different ways in which we seek to uphold the family. Well, it's because God has ordained the family to be at the heart of what the church is about and his purposes in the church. And there's a number of other reasons as well, and I'll mention a, a couple in a moment. Even single ministries are ministries in which we welcome singles into families. He says he puts the solitary into families. And I think it's so cool the way you guys welcome singles into your family activities. I think that's exactly the way it should be. So, uh, one of the things I, I should mention, though, is just because we're a family-integrated church does not mean we neglect the individuals. Just because he talks about God's intention of reaching families does not mean he neglects individuals, because in the next verse, uh, he makes it clear that it's God's intention in turning every one of you from your iniquities. Every one of you is important to God. But how does God bless you? He says you're most whole when you're integrated in some fashion into the family. Verse 26, to you first, to you first. Now that's simply a restatement of the biblical um, command that Jesus gave to his apostles and Paul reiterates later on, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now that does bring up an interesting question. Why to the Jew first? Why did Jesus spend all of his ministry, with very few exceptions, with Jews? Why did he say, I came not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Why did he spend so much time gathering together this 120 believers who formed the core of the church from the Jews? And for that matter, why were uh, all of his disciples except for Judas from Galilee? And among those disciples, why were so many of them 
uh, related by blood or neighbors or close friends. Uh, and uh, we've already given one theological reason in Acts chapter 1 and one missiological reason, but I think there's just a very, very practical reason as well. You're far more effective in working with people that you know and you care for and who know you and you've got webs of relationships with than you are with a stranger that's across, uh, across the, the, the country. There are very few people who are effective in reaching those that they do not know. About 1%. About 1% of the church is effective in reaching cross-culturally. And you look in the book of Acts, with the exception of Paul and his team, most of the people who come to faith in this book you're going to be seeing come because of those webs of relationships. You have families coming to Christ, all of a sudden coming, you know, just in one day. Uh, you've got, uh, in one case, a school coming to Christ and uh, a couple synagogues coming to Christ. And you've got these webs of relationships. This is the way that God functions. Uh, most frequently. Now, I call this pattern the oikos evangelism pattern that the Lord has set up. I've read quite a number of surveys uh, that have been done over time that show that God continues to work the way he has in the Bible. And uh, I want you to listen to this. One of the, que uh, the questions were, they list out a number of things. Which of these things were influential in leading you uh, to receive Christ? One half of 1% said it was an evangelistic crusade. That's not even 1%. One half of 1%, and yet where does most of the money, you know, go? It's to these big, glitzy crusade efforts. One half of 1%. The lowest survey figure that I saw was 1%. The highest was 2% was a special need. Uh, between 1% and 2% visitation. 2 to 3% walked into the church off the street on their own. Two to three percent church outreach program. Here's the church spending money and effort and going, doing all kinds of stuff, trying to reach people. Two to three percent. Four to five percent Sunday school. Five to six percent said the pastor led them to Christ. Now, I really disappointed me. <laughs> you know, why do you think I hired uh, Pastor Durham on? He said, well, five to six percent. And then here's the last part. 75% was the lowest I saw on any of the surveys. 75 to 90% said it was the influence of a friend or a relative. It was the only double-digit figure. Up to 90% were won to Christ by people in their close networks of relationship. So if you've been really frustrated uh, <laughs> with uh, reaching out, what I would encourage you to do is start focusing on the people that you know, that care for you and uh, uh, the, the webs of relationship that you have. And I think we need to also try to put off the individualistic way where we think people can only come individually. God frequently does it, families as a whole. We need to realize things like Noah and uh, Abraham, who leads you know, at least 318 people to Christ on that day, and, and uh, Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus and all of these other people who they believed... And their whole family came to Christ. And people say, yeah, but I'm really suspicious about whether they really came to Christ is, uh, is the question that they have. But he goes on and he says, verse 26, To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one, one of you away from your iniquities. Now, I've already commented on this some, but I do want to, uh, you to notice in closing three things. Even though God often reaches entire families and tribes within a matter of months, and by the way, the word families there, patria, can, it, it deals with 
family, clan, can be a tribe, um, it can be a large group, but they're all closely knit in some, in some kind of a way. Even though God many times will do that, salvation or conversion is not just a group decision. It is still every one of you who must repent and believe. And so there's a balance between the families of verse 25 and the every one of you of verse 26. Now, many people think that those are opposites. They're not. They are linked together. And usually today, where people go is they say, you know, they're utterly skeptical, unless they're actually on the mission field, and they see it happening, and they say, whoa, I would never have dreamed of it. But you get reports of, you know, 10,000 people coming to Christ, you know, an entire tribe coming to Christ, or a clan, and people say, yeah, right, they're just following the leader. And some of the missionaries who were on the field said uh, that themselves, they said they were utterly skeptical, but 20 years in hindsight, they look back on that, and they said, you know what? it was so obvious that these people had the power of the Holy Spirit in them. Their lives were being transformed. They were dedicated Christians. You could see that they were genuine, and yet they all came as a group uh, coming to Christ. And so I don't think we should pit one against the other. Both frequently happen, and to this day in Fiji, in Papua New Guinea, Irian Jaya, India, there are entire tribes coming to Christ. 2,000, you know, in a matter of a week. 5,000, sometimes occasionally, 100,000 people coming over a matter of months to the Lord. And you look at those and you say, was that just a group decision, sociological? No, it's both. Uh, we shouldn't pit one over against uh, the other. Second, notice that this turning from iniquities is the blessing that God sends. Sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Salvation is unto holiness. It's unto blessing, but it's unto holiness, and sanctification is indeed a blessing. Now, many times people think that when people are calling them, you know, to holiness, that it's just killjoys who don't want me to have any fun. But it's quite the opposite. The scripture indicates that the wages of sin is death and misery, and brokenness of life. And so if you're being rescued from that into holiness, it makes sense that it's a blessing from the Lord. But still, many times we just feel, oh, Lord, you're just trying to take away my fun. You're robbing me. And if that has been your attitude, I want you to meditate on John chapter 15. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Not half, not empty, full. The only way you can have your cup of joy so full, it's running over, is in the path of holiness. It's in keeping God's commandments. God delights in delighting his people and we think we're having fun by holding on to our sins. No, that's the way of misery. That's the way of brokenness and death. And so I hope I've convinced you holiness is a blessing. He has saved us to be holy. Third, it is Jesus and Jesus alone who turns every one from their sins. <clears throat> People cannot be converted by exercising their free will, <laughs> right? Their wills are bound. People cannot be converted apart from God's sovereign grace. They cannot be holy apart from sovereign grace. It is Jesus who turns us away from sin. Philippians 2.13 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You couldn't even want to be holy unless Jesus was working in you that will to be holy, right? He's doing it. And so if God has grabbed hold of your heart and you love holiness, give him the glory. Because that's the only way you would have been, been able to do it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There is that emphasis again. We've been created unto holiness, right? Be, be, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, when you understand that it's all of grace, not just conversion, but our sanctification, our Christian walk, it's all of grace, you're going to be in a position where you can begin to find joy in your Christian life. So many Christians think of sanctification as pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, toughing it out, just really trying hard. No, what sanctification is, according to Galatians chapter 3, it's by faith, just like conversion is. It's entering deeper and deeper into the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ's provisions by faith. It's walking in the empowering of the Holy Spirit from start to finish. It's a supernatural work of God. And so it's my prayer that the Lord, uh, if he has not already begun that work in you, would begin to turn every one of you away from your iniquities and cause you to enter into the joy of the Lord, into the blessing of holiness. May it be so, Lord. Amen. Father God, we thank you so much for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, that his goal was to uh, rescue us from the judgment and the hellfire which we deserved. And uh, we uh, just lay our lives down and say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for our salvation. And I pray, O oh God, that the rest of our lives uh, would be a P.S. saying thank you, Lord. We want to serve you. We want to enter into the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And I pray that we would not uh, bail out and short-circuit that joy process by clinging on to our sins and being deceived into thinking that it's only through sin and through rebellion and through independence that we can have that joy. Help us to realize that it's a, as we crucify our flesh, as we deny ourselves and follow after Christ, that we find that joy inexpressible and full of glory. May each one in this congregation enter into that joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.